to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Tomas Ojea Quintana, former UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Thank you for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You've served in numerous positions across the UN system, uh, including Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in Myanmar, and as I mentioned most recently as Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in DPRK. What is your perspective on your most recent role in North Korea, and how would you view that role in comparison to to previous positions? Okay, so for the special procedures of the United Nations Human Rights Council, which usually we call it special reporters, one of the main and most important resources that we have is to engage with the authorities of the concerned country. And if you engage, then you have the chance to go to the ground, to walk throughout the country, to uh, meet uh, authorities, but also to try to go to prisons and to meet uh, prisoners claiming human rights abuses. And you also go to different regions, trying to meet ethnic minorities. So that's a very important uh, element of, of this mechanism of the Human Rights Council. Uh, engage, engaging the counterpart. And unfortunately, with regards to the Democratic Republic of Korea, it has been the case since the establishment of this mandate in 2004. Since that time, even with other uh, reporters, the government of the DPRK has been completely closed to any kind of uh, engagement and cooperation and conversation with, 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 the, with the special reporters. And that's a problem because we have to report to the Human Rights Council. And the Human Rights Council, which is integrated with 47 countries, will definitely look into our reports and check the reliability, the credibility, how the reports are sustained in terms of evidence, and so on and so forth. So uh, it has been very challenging for me throughout the six years holding the mandate of the DPR Korea, reporting about the situation of human rights on the ground. Fortunately, we have uh, many organizations working on the DPRK human rights agenda. Back in 2014, the Human Rights Council established the Commission of Inquiry for DPR Korea, an important initiative, issued a groundbreaking report where they found uh, a number of uh, human rights abuses, serious human rights abuses, that the Commission qualified them as crimes against humanity. And they hold hearings 
with different parties around the world, collecting evidence, information, giving the background necessary to basically make that conclusion that a series of international crimes were committed in DPR Korea. So that, that was very important for my mandate, but also all the testimonies that I collected throughout the six years talking to those who left North Korea, you know, ordinary citizens, most of them women who crossed the border with China and uh, took a very uh, dangerous journey to base to finally arrive to South Korea. And I had the chance to speak with many of these uh, escapees, as I call them, who were basically escaping a number of situations, including human rights abuses. So that gave me the chance to report to the United Nations with serious evidences of what I was saying. This, this status quo, let's say like that, this status quo about the neglect of North Korea to engage with the human rights agenda of the United Nations continues. Now, a new special reporter has been appointed, my colleague Elizabeth Salmon, and she's facing the same trouble, which is lack of possibility, at least have a diplomatic encounter with North Korean diplomats, let's say in New York or Geneva or somewhere else. Uh, so the situation is very extreme, different from my experience as a Myanmar reporter. As a Myanmar reporter, I engaged the military at that time in 2008, and I had the chance to visit 10 times Myanmar and travel all over the country. Uh, the experience with DPR Korea continues the same. From my opinion, together with the necessity to address the seriousness of the human rights abuses in North Korea. The other challenge is to see how to open channels of communication with the government. That will be a, a very important achievement for, for the human rights of the people living in North Korea. Uh, the alternative is complete isolation of the country from the outside world, very heavy sanctions regime against the system of North Korea. And uh, and that's, that's a problem really for those like us who are advocating for an improvement of the human rights of the people living inside the country. Now, you mentioned the, the UN Commission of Inquiry's report, um, which you know historically documented crimes against humanity in uh, North Korea and also said that the government was manifestly failing to uphold its responsibility to protect. During your term as special rapporteur, what crimes did you witness remained ongoing? That's a, that's a very important question because the mandate of the Commission of Inquiry included until I think to the year of 2012, even 2014, many of the findings of the COI referred to policies from the, the, the old leaders in North Korea, including Kim Il-sung and then Kim Jong-il 
the COI, though, reached out to Kim Jong-un, basically making a very strong point that, uh, according to their information, uh, some of those crimes were ongoing, and then it was his responsibility to stop the continuation of these crimes. And I should say that um, during my tenure as a reporter, during these six years, I had the chance to reconfirm that some of those crimes were continuing. First, you have the situation of the enforced disappearance of persons, you know, a number, large number of people who were kidnapped during and after in the aftermath of the Korean War and the families continue to hope for a response about their whereabouts, what happened to them, uh, you know, all rights that are insured in, in, in a number of uh, international uh, treaties. And that's continuing, you know, the, the government of North Korea up to date denies any information about it including the abduction of the Japanese and other uh, foreigners by North Korea. Uh, that's, that's something that continues, you know, and the principle behind crime of uh, enforced disappearance of persons is that it continues until the government provides information about what happened to these people. So that's an ongoing crime, will not stop until, uh, until uh, the government of North Korea, the current authorities, open the files, the records that they have in their hands and show what happened to these people. But then you have the situation inside the country with people, North Koreans, people who suffer the crime of arbitrary detention, also enforced disappearance of persons, including torture. And the, in this respect, one of the most serious concerns that I had and that the Human Rights Council has about the human rights in North Korea is the existence of prisons that we call political prison camps. These uh, facilities where those people who had any disagreement, any problems, political problems with the government, any actions that the government perceives as threatening the system, the political system in North Korea, are sent to these facilities with no longer any contact with the outside world, with their families. And this this is a very extreme situation that I had a chance to confirm about its continuing existence while talking to these escapees that I told you before. Every time that I had the chance to exchange and to listen to the stories of these escapees, I asked them about their knowledge or where, whether they know someone who has been sent to these political prison camps. And all of them, they say that they know about their existence and that they fear very much chances to be sent them or any family member to this political prison camps. So this is this also represents a human rights violation that qualifies as a crime against humanity. And then you have a, a, a number of human rights abuses that uh, uh, continues in the country because you have patterns of discrimination amongst the population, 
where the population is uh, separated uh, according to their background, the political background or the social background. And they, then you have different status in North Korea that, that entails a pattern of discrimination, which is a human rights uh, violation. And, and then you have a lack of freedoms. This is, um, I, I'm, I can't qualify this regime in North Korea as a totalitarian regime where the state controls every aspect of the individual in the country. Actual, actually, the individual itself doesn't seem to exist other than as being a part of the community and having to offer all, all, all his or his or her uh, livelihood to the to the system, which uh, is represented by the Workers' Party of Korea. And therefore, uh, freedoms are completely restricted. Uh, I'm talking about freedom of, of expression, where you have uh, the, the, you know all, all the media controlled by the, the government. And then you have freedom of no freedom of movement. It's very difficult for the population to move from one township to another. Of course, you if you want to leave the country, you have to go through a whole process where the government decides whether or not to give you permission to leave the country. So all of this is controlled. But uh, the issue of uh, political prison camps has been for me most serious concern in the country and it has been always included in all my reports to the human rights council thank you and did, did you witness anything improve um over the six years of your mandate or did it continue to deteriorate uh again we face the question of uh, access access to information, access to patterns, access to new policies, new legislation. But, you know, we, we, we know that that's, that's a challenge, but we try to face that challenge. I received information about, for example, on the uh, crime of torture, which some them in the country call them ill-treatment of prisoners. I heard sometimes from... Um, escapees that in prisons, in some of, not in the political prison camps, but in ordinary facilities where people are held, that some orders were issued by the authorities to prevent some instructions that I remember very well, some instructions to the guard community of prisons not to retreat prisoners. I haven't had the chance to Again, I mean, I, when I say that engagement is important, it is because then you can discuss even these uh, possible improvements with the authorities. I haven't had the chance to do that, but we heard about that. For example, we heard that uh, some uh, the prosecutors often order prosecutors to visit prisons to check on on the fulfillment of these instructions, not to. Il- to ill-treat prisoners. That was a very specific development that it was of my interest. At some point, there was some progress at the beginning of my, of my mandate in 2016, 17, and 18 on, on the access to food, the right to access to adequate food, which has been uh, in the past, during the 1990s, a very 
catastrophic situation in the country that faced famine, where thousands of people died for starvation. During those years that I mentioned, 2016, 17, and 18, there was some improvement in this respect with, a, with an economic situation inside the country progressing and therefore allowing ordinary North Koreans to access to more food. Uh, so I, I would say that, regrettably, when the, when the pan pandemic of COVID-19 started to hit everywhere in the world and also in North Korea, the government uh, took a number of uh, decisions to prevent the outbreak in the country at the beginning of the pandemic that made you know, this good trend towards guaranteeing more access to adequate food uh, to go on the other side. Since then and up to date, we are receiving information that the situation of accessing to food has been aggravating. Uh, your audience should know that due to the pandemic, most of the embassies in Pyongyang, in the capital city of North Korea, closed. Most of foreigners left the country. The United Nations humanitarian agencies have left and the possibilities to provide humanitarian assistance is very complicated. And, uh, and therefore, the extreme isolation of North Korea at this point in time is very, very concerning. There have been recently some reports about the exacerbation of, of the food insecurity in some regions uh, of North Korea, especially in, in, the, in, in the provinces in the north, Hamyong and, uh, and Hamyong uh, um, provinces in the north. Uh, and that's, that's very concerning. By the way, the COI, the Commission of Inquiry, did include in their report allegations of the use of starvation uh, against people, and my, that, that which might qualify as a crime against humanity. I haven't uh, uh, reached to that conclusion myself. The problem of food insecurity in North Korea, which uh, affects almost 40% of the population, in my view, it is structural, it is very endemic, and it has also a number of different angles and causes. And one of these uh, points, and I mentioned that before, it is the sanctions regime from the Security Council that uh, basically impacts the whole economy of North Korea and therefore impacts the, the lives, the, the economy of the people of North Korea. Thank you for that. I was I was just about to turn to the international response to the situation in North Korea. So it's an excellent um, segue into that. Um, you know, you, there have been a few things you've mentioned and emphasized already in terms of the isolation of the country. Um, you know, obviously, some of that is a choice on the part of the North Korean government to isolate itself uh, from the international community. But um, the international community has certainly uh, created many barriers to working with um, the DPRK government. 
Uh, and a, a large part of that comes from Security Council action and practice. Uh, we know that the Security Council frequently deals with uh, DPRK exclusively from the lens of nuclear nonproliferation, and that's sort of the heart of, of that sanctions regime that you just mentioned. Um, you know, what, what do you think can be done to shift the status quo of um, either lack of political will to, to do anything to leverage human rights in the country or just um, complete focus on the nuclear issues and security issues uh, at the expense of addressing the human rights crisis and addressing how these measures are exacerbating that crisis? Okay, thank you, Jacqueline. These are no easy questions, uh, but um, those like me who decide to basically take these roles, we are obliged at least to think or reflect about possible answers. First, you are right when you say that the issue of isolation, it is a choice by the government of North Korea. I would say... It's a choice because it is it's a policy. It is more than a policy even. It is a doctrine. It has been a drug doctrine elaborated by the authorities of, of North Korea since Kim Il-sung, which is represented in, 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 in an idea which is called the Chuche idea. Difficult to translate into our own language, but you can say that represents an idea that you are going to rely on your own resources, you are going to develop your life relying on yourself. Basically a self-relying. You are going to produce your food, you are going to, you are going to build your uh, households, you are going to provide your, your education, you are going to uh, build a health system that gives health care to everyone. You are going to assure a uh, you know, life, a, a happy life to everyone. You are going to protect your children and you, do, you are not going to request any help from anyone. The doctrine of the church doctrine, which is quite present in the mindset of North Koreans, and it is being used by the government basically to keep the system as it is, you know, a system that uh, has all these serious human rights violations. It is a political system that in, in the core of the system, of the political system, you will find human rights abuses uh, that the system is not willing to change, you know, to revert. When you speak about other political systems around the world, and you can speak about democracies, democracies around the world have a lot of human rights problems, even human rights violations. But the essence of the democratic, democratic system is to try to over, overturn those human rights abuses. While this political system in North Korea, in, in the core of the system, has an idea of human rights violations, which of course they don't accept as a human rights violation. The government, the authorities, the 
you know, the, the, the people also living in North Korea, they, they will not accept that all these things that we're talking about entail human rights violations. I, I always wanted to be, of course, serious about my approaches and reports of human rights of North Korea, but also trying to also be objective as possible, no? trying to understand how they live, what is their, in their minds and how they, per, they, they perceive the world and their system and other systems. So they do not accept that there are human rights violations, not because they are dictators or let's say not only that the leader Kim, like, like, like the leader Kim Jong-un, that basically he's not accountable to their own people at all. I'm not talking about accountable to the international system. He, the people of North Korea, cannot ask uh, him for any ac- accountability of what he's doing. But, any, but what I'm saying is not because they are this kind of uh, uh, dictators, but because they really believe that this is a system. And therefore, we need to have a dialectic debate with them, you know, about it. We, we cannot just drop to them uh, the ideas, general ideas. We need, especially if we are committed to uh, try to get some improvements on the ground, like the one that I told you, uh, you know, trying to improve uh, the treatment of prisoners. And, uh, and others, th- there was this great example about a delegation of North Koreans agents who traveled to Geneva to attend the hearing at the Committee of the Elimination of uh, Racial Discrimination Against Women. You know, there was this hearing where they presented their report. And that hearing was really interesting because uh, the members of the committee noted the disconnection that was between their own human rights discourse I would say our own discourse, and what is it that these ordinary agents of different ministers in North Korea have in their mind? For example, they there was a discussion about marital rape. No members of the committee, of course, deal with this um, serious issue of marital rape and the issue of consent and all that. And these uh, North Korean agents who were in Geneva reporting and telling members of the committee what they were doing about the rights of the women, they didn't understand. And they asked them, why don't you explain us what marital rape means? Genuinely, they were not in a position to uh, denying everything. They they wanted to know. So that's what what I'm saying. Now, as you also rightly said, Jacqueline, the isolation, it's also triggered by a number of actions taken by the international community. And you mentioned the status quo. The status quo in North Korea is something that is being pursued by all parties, in my opinion. It is in favor of the regime of North Korea, but it is also in favor of the other parties. And let me be very clear, or as clear as possible, I'm talking about the Chinese government, the U.S. government, and uh, basically those players. For them, according to my point of view, the status quo, it is perfectly well. 
they don't, any one of them want a change in the Korean Peninsula. There is no uh, really intention to revert anything that is happening in, in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, not even the denuclearization, which is you know, paradoxic, paradoxic because uh, what the Security Council and wants and the United States wants is the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But not even that. So ultimately, the status quo affects, according to our view as human rights uh, advocates, affects the human rights of the people because you don't see you know, any channel where you can you know, do something to improve the situation or discuss the, the, to improve the situation. So that's unfortunately the, 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 my point of view, what's happening in, in the Korean Peninsula. You know, the geopolitics in, in Asia, Asia Pacific is so strong that impedes tangible work for improving the human rights situation. Now, the connection between the nuclear issue in North Korea and human rights is quite clear, but has different implications. The first implication is that has been argued by the Security Council, and actually it is written in the Security Council resolutions that according to their view, according to the view of the Security Council of the United Nations, North Korea is diverting all resources necessary to attend the necessities, the necessities of their people to develop a nuclear and ballistic missile program. And that's a clear implication, you know, where if you are not really having a balance in the use of your resources to attend the necessities of your people, then there is, there is an issue, a human rights issue there. But at the same time, another implication, which has been part of my struggle throughout the mandate, it is that the stalemate on the nuclear agenda is so, so, so extreme that you don't have chances to really address human rights issues in the real world. The one of one strong recommendation of the Commission of Inquiry was for the Security Council of the United Nations to send the case to the International Criminal Court, and nothing has happened in this aspect since 2014. So, I have been advocating as a human rights reporter at the Security Council two things: one send the case to the International Criminal Court. Then it will be for the International Criminal Court and the prosecutor's office to see if there is evidence really to build a case. You know, it's going to be a, a lawsuit, basically. That Then is another question. Please uh, try to build a consensus, the same consensus that you have when imposing sanctions. Because don't forget that the Security Council of the United Nations sanctions regime towards North Korea has been approved by the, all the five permanent members, including China and Russia. So what I'm saying is North Korea is suffering the consequences of sanctions approved, not only by the, by the regulars, mean, meaning the US and others, but also by China and Russia. 
So my point was, first, reach to the same kind of consensus to, re to send the case to the International Criminal Court. It is your responsibility to do that, according to the UN, the UN Charter. But at the same time, please uh, review your sanctions regime to see to what extent this is affecting the lives of the people in North Korea. And that's also part of their responsibility. And uh, during my tenure, in the second point, uh, I should say that the Security Council uh, Sanctions Committee always received me, received me. I had a chance to meet them many times, discussing this point of view. And some decisions were taken, speeding up the process of exemptions and so on. So it was a good reception from the Security Council on this point. More has needs to be done in this respect. But also the issue of accountability. I am an individual who is from Argentina. And in Argentina, uh, we experienced a very interesting process of accountability for crimes committed during a dictatorship that we had during the 1970s. And I know from, from, from my own experience how important it is accountability in terms of ratifying our conviction about what should not be done by anyone, like torture and other crimes, by also preventing future crimes, you know, like a deterrence for future crimes. And also, finally, to assure the rights of the victims to be heard, the, the rights of the victims for justice. That's why I have also always been very, very clear with the Security Council members that that recommendation to, to send the case of North Korea to the ICC will always remain in reports and until they, they make a decision in this respect. You know, in the absence of an ICC referral, what would justice and accountability look like for um, populations in North Korea? There are non-governmental organizations and victims have been during these years has been trying different accountability processes in domestic courts and uh, with different results. I can mention, for example, the case of Otto Warmbier, Otto was a U.S. student who was as a tourist in North Korea, and uh, he was detained by the authorities and subject to um, an arbitrary trial. This, this is another important point to mention. There is no, of course, an independent judiciary in DPR Korea. There is no uh, due process guarantees, basically, you are uh, convicted uh, if the authorities decide to do it. Uh, and that's what happened with uh, Otto Warmbier. He was convicted without fair trial and uh, he was convicted and, and applied a very disproportionate penalty. And uh, in prison, he was, uh, he suffered a health problem uh, and uh, went into a comatosis and the government of North Korea never explained what happened to him. He finally was returned to the U.S. and died some days afterward. Um, so it is clear that uh, the government of North Korea, again, 
because of the issue of accountability, needs to respond and explain what happened to Otto Warbier. His parents uh, sued North Korea and Kim Jong-un in the US, for example, and won a number of rulings, and they are trying to uh, see how to execute uh, those rulings. And there are other uh, families and victims uh, of human rights abuses of North Korea that are, that are trying different courts, even in South Korea. Some others tried in, in Japan as well. And the, there is a UN human rights office in Seoul who is mandated to basically explore together with the victims, explore possibilities of accountability. And that process, it is ongoing. In my point of view, the international system of accountability, meaning the ICC, but also the prosecutor's office of the ICC, especially the prosecutor's office, I think there are chances for the prosecutor's office of the International Criminal Court to open a case with regards to North Korea. It requires very fine technical analysis, but I think there are chances, and I think it has to be done. In one of my last reports, I said that there is a need to take concrete action on the accountability agenda. Something needs to be done. Since the 2014 Commission of Inquiry, next year, 10 years would have passed, and the international community did not react after that report in terms of accountability action. And something needs to be done, especially at the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC. And for that, we need the commitment of member states of the United Nations. And the, that, that, that should be the, the message from those who are advocating human rights improvement in North Korea. Uh, and that should be the message also to the system, to the authorities, to the regime of North Korea, that there is a case file being investigated somewhere about their human rights abuses. I think also I mean, I think everything needs to be done at the same time, Jacqueline. Go for actions to pursue accountability, but also to change the status quo and decide to open engagement with North Korea. And here, the role of the U.S. government is critical. And we don't want to see the North Korean human rights agenda and the overall North Korean agenda is forced into the competition that we are seeing now between the U.S. and China. But let me tell you, I started to see a number of different opportunities on how to to discuss human rights at some point. Something that at at this point in time, the discussion about human rights in North Korea is only among us, member states, but we don't have other members of the international community having this kind of discussion. And uh, this is and leading us to nowhere for the time being. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.global.r number two p.org and connect with us on twitter and facebook at gcr2p